is a case from the Shoyoroku. The pointer. Inside the castle is the emperor's decree. Outside the gate is the general's command. Sometimes power is obtained at the gate. Other times, reverence is admired within the chamber. Tell me, who is such a person? Main case. Attention. Monk asked Kasan, how about when sweeping out the dust to see the Buddha? Kasan said, straight away, slash with the soul. If you don't, the fisherman will live in a nest. The monk then went and asked Sekiso, how about when sweeping out the dust, you see the Buddha? Sekiso said, he has no country. Where can he be met? The monk then returned to Kasan and related this to him. Kasan ascended the high seat and said, In setting up expedients, I am better than he. But as to the profound talk of the principle, he is a hundred paces ahead of me. The verse. A soul's spirit drives out the bull. The heavens are washing the soldiers. To achieve the quelling of a riot, who is he? Once there were battle clouds, the four seas were clear. With flowing robes, the emperor's governing is naturally effortless. come to Sishin, we enter Sishin on the vortex of our fast-paced everyday life, which manifests very differently for each of us. Most of us juggle between endless responsibilities, trying to play catch-up game with the clock trying to keep up with being on time at work, pick up the kids, make dinner, walk the dog, get to the Zafu. And as we run around from one task to another, our hasty footsteps raise lots of dust that impairs the view gets in the eyes, gets everywhere, makes it difficult to breathe, also gets into every nook and cranny of our lives. We end up spending so much time trying to clean it up faster than it accumulates, which is quite a grim reality, right? Because the more we clean, the faster we clean, the faster it accumulates. As soon as we are done cleaning up, vacuuming, there it goes again. Actually, that's my daughter's uh, 
excuse for not cleaning. She says, why should I bother? It's dirty again. Might as well just push it to the side. Maybe some of us try to do that too. <laughs> push it to the side. And Zen has this, you know, put side by side with that, against that. It has this pristinely clean image. Many people think that practitioners actually live a dust-free life. But is it true? Is that what we're aiming for? To get to a place where there's no more dust? No more complications, no more challenges. Now we engage in the work of learning how to pick the clock or clear up the dust faster than it accumulates. There's a Zen saying that addresses this notion. It says, when a fish swims, the water gets muddied. When a bird flies, it inevitably loses feathers. As long as we are alive, we are creating and experiencing dust and all kinds of complications, challenges, afflictions. Some we cause directly, some indirectly. Or the fact that throughout our lives the water gets muddied and feathers fall is not really up for debate. It's just the way it is. But the question is, or has to be, is that an issue? Is that the problem? Is that something we need to change or fix? You know, if we think that the dust, the dust is caused by our, or the cause of our discontentment and unhappiness, then yes, it is an issue. And yes, we are destined to never experiencing any lasting sense of contentment simply because it will never change, the accumulation of it. So if that's how we perceive it, if that's how life is, then what are we doing here? Why do we bother? There is a strong assumption in us that the changing circumstances, unpleasant sensations, undesirable situations are the cause of our inner discontentment. I think we are actually indoctrinated by our upbringing and society to, to be convinced that this is the case. What the Buddha realized and taught is quite different. We thought that freedom is not only attainable, it's actually our natural domain as human beings. 
but he also pointed out that each one of us must realize this on our own. His realization is on one level our realization, but on another it's not. It is up to us. And also it's important to remember that we are not trying to swap one assumption for another or get re-indoctrinated. This is actually about being completely unchained to any form or any dogma. Which of course sounds, uh, looks odd because it seems that everything we do, especially at Sashin's, is highly dogmatic and structured. So how is that? How, is a how can a structure serve as a way out of a structured mind? come to Sashin to, to verify this on our own and examine and examine on our own if indeed the dust is the culprit that robs us from experiencing completion and inner peace and Sashins are they give us an incredible opportunity to do this work in a supportive and conducive environment. There are multiple Zazen periods, silence for the most part, create an ideal laboratory for courageous spiritual exploration while not running away from the unpleasant thoughts or turning away from pain and discomfort, while not trying to rearrange life to fit our personal desires. From there we observe the assumption. And from there we pose the essential question of a spiritual journey. Is the dust of the world binding? Is it binding? It feels like that, but does it? Now we come here to raise the level of awareness and illuminate whatever we believe is binding us. And once it's illuminated, verify whether or not it's true. First, we gotta illuminate, which means we gotta stop creating more dust. We stop and we look. And the oneness is like a flashlight. By its nature, it has the power to show what is happening without getting entangled 
bite it. You know, like a, a beam of a flashlight. You, know, you, you shine the beam of flashlight on gold and it doesn't change anything. Still doing the same thing, just beam of light. It's not elevated, it's not affected by that. You shine it on shit. It doesn't smell bad. It doesn't become less pure, less radiant. It's the same with awareness. To be aware of agitation is not to be agitated. Because the awareness itself is not agitated. To be aware of sadness, anger, loneliness, anxiety. To be aware of it. First step of spiritual practice. Step back and look. What is awareness? Is it owned by someone? Is it something that has to be built, put together? And if it is, what are the ingredients? On what? Do we put it together? And we're not taught to perceive reality in this way. We're actually taught quite the opposite. We're taught to perceive reality from a very refined sense of self. Chiseled, me, me and the world I am looking at. How does the world affect me? How am I affecting the world? What does it mean about me? What am I getting out of it? What am I not getting out of it? Even this. There's no doubt that your minds are producing such thoughts. Am I ever going to get this? Is it a waste of time? Is it? That's why it takes courage to show up here. It takes courage to willfully mess with the concepts that give us such a strong sense of security and identity, a strong sense of insecurity. It's strange how insecurity can actually be a sense of security, a sense of knowing. Whether it's a, uh, what we see as a negative or a positive emotion, Essentially, it can serve the same purpose. 
So we have to exact that. And what we want to see and what we want to look at is all the building blocks that comprise that precious cell. Question of who are you? And this question is conventionally answered by producing what the I is attached to, whether it's family relations, history, occupation, aspirations, assets, whatever it is we have attached to that over the years. That's me. But then, when all this is put aside as it needs to be here, now, who are you? What is left? How else can I answer that question if I don't turn to what I'm attached to? That's why when things get quiet, the mind starts to look around. What can I think about now? What kind of familiar thoughts can I pull out and entertain myself with. <laughs> I recently watched uh, with my kids some footage of uh, free solo rock climbing where the climbers ascend massive vertical rocks of over a thousand feet without being attached to a safety rope. Which means that falling is dying. One of the climbers described the experience of being up on the, on the rock, on the face of the rock, and she said, there is a pretty strong mental dialogue and a strong engagement with fear. And it's hard to push through that fear. And she said, it takes a lot of work and a lot of preparation. But I don't have to be paralyzed by fear. I can just go do it. I don't have to be paralyzed by, by my fear, fears, by my thoughts, or whatever shows up. I don't have to believe it. To be paralyzed by it, of course, starts with believing it. Believing that it means something. Believing that every thought and every emotion and every memory actually has a meaning. And what she's describing is actually a good description of what we often experience when we turn towards the afflictions of the mind. And we feel held back by past events, maybe by current circumstances. And all the emotions are attached to that. And it all shows up in what she describes as a strong mental dialogue and a strong engagement with fear. 
sit here and sometimes it gets quiet and sometimes there is a very strong mental dialogue. Trusting something, losing the trust, regaining it, doubting again. Finding a little bit of freedom in that and then going right back to it. When I said yesterday that we, we're not here to go anywhere else, we're not here to get through and to go back home. I meant that it will show up and we have to recognize that it's going to show up, those thoughts will show up and we have to be prepared to work with them. As she says, it takes a lot of preparation. And in that preparation, there is a, an understanding or an acknowledgement that I will encounter endless thoughts. And some very heavy. Very sticky. Very personal. But to not be paralyzed by. That's the key. To not be paralyzed. Which means for us to keep doing the work we came here to do. she kept describing this experience, you know, she said something that I found very powerful. She said, being up on a rock without ropes is being in an environment that has a lot of risk while being in control of yourself. If you can control yourself, you are going to be safe. Or maybe you think that's an assumption, right? Because she doesn't know. It's true, she doesn't know. She doesn't know whether or not she will actually be able to climb without dying. So it's not based on prediction. She's not looking into the future and, and, and draw that security from that. She's not also not looking back and drawing the security from that. But she's drawing it from the moment, from being up on the rock, of course with preparation. So to be in an environment that has a lot of risk, isn't that everyday life? There is, there are risks all the time. Risks of losing life, of course. And not being rock climbers doesn't mean that we have a better chance of surviving. We're not going to survive, but of making it to 80, 85, 90, 
or whatever it is we think we're going to make it to. We are in an environment that has a lot of risk. And it's just about being in control of yourself. If you can control yourself, you're going to be safe. To control yourself does not mean to chain yourself to anything. It means to recognize, to work with, to not be paralyzed by. To not be surprised by. To control is to not control. To give space, as Suzuki says, with the thoughts, to, to give them large meadow to go graze. You control your thoughts by allowing them plenty of space. Then you're not bothered by them. What she's describing fits very well with the way we need to work. We need to do this work here. Now with the changes of life circumstances and conditions. Instead of trying to force the conditions to change, we take the responsibility to gain control by yielding and adapting. We do it through processing, regulating as the Buddha said, to regulate the mental and emotional reactivity. And to regulate our state of being while dealing with the changes. While dealing with risky situations. Often the risk has everything to do with losing the self. Often the death is not a physical death that we are worried about. It's the death of something that we hold so dearly to, that we love to grab onto. That's the fear. The word control, I think, triggers wrong connotations in us. We need to clarify that in relation to practice, it is referring more to allowing rather than stifling. Control is not what it sounds like. In that kind of control, nothing is controlling nothing. Shantideva said, you're not here to change the world. The world is here to change you. What happens is there to make us realize that we are one and the same with it. That we have to yield. We have to accept it. It meaning things as they are. 
During this con, the monk went to see two different teachers and posed the same question. How about when sweeping out the dust to see the Buddha? Maybe he's asking that because he still holds on to an assumption that everyday life is hindering him. Or maybe he already had Kensho experience and wants to verify it. Maybe just looking for encouragement, for practice. But it really doesn't matter. The relevance of this question always comes down to our practice, to today, to you. What do you think is hindering you? What do you feel you have to sweep away before you can see the Buddha? What are your obstacles? What's holding you back from realizing true self? So he first went to see Kazan. You said, straight away, slash with the salt. If you don't, the fishermen will live in the nest. The salt is a very vivid image then. And it's used to illustrate the power of wisdom, power of realization. Which is available to all, but most walk around in the dark without ever knowing that they possess such a soul. And then some recognize it, but are not very skilled in using it. You know, the phrase from the Diamond Sutra tells us exactly how to use this. It says, dwelling nowhere raise the body-mind. Which means, if you think you are deluded, cut the identification with the thought and keep flowing. If you think you are enlightened, then cut the identification with that thought and do not abide there as well. But any thought that appears, do not identify, do not sit on it, do not grab it. Any particle of dust is a teacher. Probably most of the ones we don't like. The dust we like doesn't really teach us a whole lot. Comfort doesn't teach us much. Kazan here is using the example of a fisherman who goes to the reeds to catch fish but then gets caught up in the reeds and can't get his boat out of there. And it's a nice image to show 
shows our tendency to want to identify with what we think, what we feel or believe, where we think we are. We go to get some spiritual food. And then, wow, this is great. This is who I am now. And we get caught up there. If you think you realized, cut it immediately. If you use the sword correctly, it will cut. But it's got to be sharp. I think the climber that I mentioned before, from what I heard, I think she knew how to use the sword and was able to cut through, identifying with her thoughts, with the fear, with the mental projections, the inner dialogue. Paralyzing fear. And so she did not dwell there and was actually free to lose herself to being one with the rock. Total merge with the face of a rock. A split second of not being there means death. Somebody just told me a story, but I uh, told it a couple of you. But this uh, famous Aikido teacher is no longer alive. The idol one time, uh, live blade, it's the art of cutting with a sword, in a class, and she was in that class, and she said she wasn't uh, aware for a second. Her mind drifted, and he saw that. And she said he actually drew his sword and he said, I'm, I'm going to kill you. And if you knew the guy, you'd think, well, yeah, that's <laughs> that makes sense, actually. He probably did mean it. And then he, she said he thought about it for a few seconds, probably terrifying seconds, but then he changed his mind. She said, he said, well, if I kill you, I'll go to jail, but I don't mind, I'll practice my zazen. I'll work on my meditation practice. And then he said, I have a lot of, maybe I shouldn't do it, I have a lot of other people I need to care for, so maybe I will not do that. But he was making a point. And the point is, we can always die, instantly before not aware. Not just being on a rock. So what if she did die while climbing? Would that be a shame? What if she did do the best she could up on a rock 
completely losing herself to the moment, to the rock, to the experience. And then grabbing hold on to something that was loose, a piece of rock that was loose. And then falling to her demise. Would that be wasted life? What are we worried about? What are we protecting? What is so precious? You know, the saying, I keep forgetting where it is, if it's uh, Suzuki or Tignatan, that when we are born, we embark on a ship that will that is destined to sink. I think it's a very uh, skillful saying. You have to remember that once in a while that whatever we do, it won't matter. So the monk then brought up the question to Sekiso. So he went to see Sekiso. Sekiso was actually a Dharma brother. So he went to see Sekiso and Sekiso said he has no country. Where can he be met? Where do you meet the Buddha? There is a name, there is an address, there is an occupation, other formations all around it. But this is just provisional expressions of what is forever undefined, unhindered. So dwelling nowhere, where do you meet the You know, dwelling nowhere raised the body-mind is actually saying the same thing twice. It's redundant. Dwelling nowhere. That's it. Dwelling nowhere, you raise the body-mind. Raising the body-mind is dwelling nowhere. Sometimes we need redundancy because we are thick and slow. We need to hear it over and over and over and over. So then this monk apparently was still not satisfied. So he went back to Kasa. And of course Kasa and Sekiso knew each other very well. So he went to Kasan and told him how Sekiso dealt with the question. And Kasan ascended the high seat and said, In setting up expedience, I am better than he. But as to the profound talk of the principle, he is a hundred paces ahead of me. What does he mean by that? Is he comparing? Why is he talking about better or not as good? You know, they express two different paths to realization. 
One is not better than the other. You know, the use of the soul symbolizes a skillful but abrupt way to cut delusions and wake up through a shout, a strike. Maybe the pain of a foot being broken, as in the case of Yunmen. And the use of a slow, profound talk. It's like the gentle process of slow cooking, which in terms of practice means lots of zazen, exposure to Dharma teacher, teishos, reading. So it's kind of like Rinzai Soto analogy. One is not better than the other. Both are skillful. Both are necessary at different times. And the pointer of this koan uses an analogy from the way emperors used to govern at that time. First two lines say, inside the castle is the emperor's decree. Outside the gate is the general's command. Now, emperors had undisputed command over people within the walls of the castle or the city, but resorted to military control in order to govern people outside the walls and in remote areas. And it's used here is an example of how we divide having control over our inner world and control over our outside circumstances and conditions. But of course, in reality, these walls don't exist. And through practice, we actually take those walls down. So there is a sense of my inner world and then what happens outside. Trying to match sometimes trying to run away, trying to control inside the gate, within the walls. The last two lines of the pointer say, sometimes power is obtained at the gates, as in the expression of Kasa. Other times, reverence is admired within the chamber, as in the expression of Sekiso. You know, Kazan expressed the skillful use of a soul that has the power to cut through delusion in the middle of the vortex of our everyday life, in the marketplace where the conditions are undesirable and actually seem non-conducive for realization. That's where sometimes power is ob obtained at the gates or within the walls. And Sekiso here is expressing the sublime power of sustained and unwavering determination. No matter what, just keep practicing. You feel good about it, you don't feel good about it, you doubt it, you trust it, it doesn't matter. Unwavering determination. While judgmental thoughts are piling up. 
And both are actually very skillful and effective ways. So we shouldn't really get caught up in comparing. Just realize that there is nothing upon which to rely. And that the time for realization is now. We came together here not to just hang out. We came to raise the level of awareness, attention, not just sitting. The way we get up off the cushion, the way we leave the cushion behind, the way we move. To be sure-footed as in the elephant crossing the river, step by step, sure-footed. The way we eat together, reverence to the food, reverence to each other, appreciation to what we do for each other. Not to get caught up in idle thoughts. Or idle movements. Just the necessary amount, as in Orioki, just enough. It means just enough. And that's what it teaches. Just enough. Don't move more, don't move less than what is needed at that moment. Don't say anything that is unnecessary. Mind your own peace. While the mind is buzzing. This is the gift of practice. This is where what seems to be highly structured offers true freedom. Don't give the mind anything to hold on to. What does it do? Where does it go? When it's done regurgitating, then what? Then just the birds chirping. That's all. Just the birds chirping. And this is what we need to lose ourselves to. 